Previously on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, we looked at how scandals threaten the Chinese Communist Party's reputation, and what happens to those who don't toe the line in China. This time, quite a long episode because we're diving deeper into the issues which the party deems too hot to touch: the Hong Kong booksellers who sold salacious gossip about party bigwigs, the businessmen who flew too close to the sun, the fate of China's number one human rights champion. The ongoing Shanghai coronavirus lockdown and the battle that rages on social media against the censors. But we pick up our story at where else? Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen means Gate of Heavenly Peace. It's 600 years old, built during the Ming Dynasty, as the entrance to the Imperial City, inside which lies the Forbidden City, home of the emperors, and now the most valuable piece of land in the world. Today, visiting Tiananmen Square is to wallow in national pride, to visit Mao's mausoleum in the square's centre, amuse at the prominent chin pimple which Mao sports in his portrait above the gate. The portrait sits within a grand declaration of goodwill to the nation and to the world, as if the dirty secret of the place has been tipexed out and written over. In 1989, during the pro-democracy demonstrations that took place here, three young dissidents threw eggs at that Mao portrait. The decision to launch those eggs earned them nine, eleven, and seventeen years in prison, respectively. They were the lucky ones. By the end of the 1980s, the political world was undergoing a seismic shift that Francis Fukuyama would become famous for, for dubbing the end of history. The question of what political order, capitalism or socialism, democracy or authoritarianism, was to reign supreme seemed to be answered. China's northern neighbor Mongolia was going through a peaceful revolution towards democracy. Countries in Eastern Europe were breaking away from the Soviet Union. The Berlin Wall was soon to come down, and within a few years, Mikhail Gorbachev would call it a day for the socialist experiment in Russia, embracing a new path which would lead to an egregious form of mafia-style capitalism and eventually an obscene autocracy under Putin that we all know about all too well. Anyway, going back to the 80s to make matters worse from a Beijing perspective, the other China, the Republic of China on Taiwan, had ended its authoritarian rule in 1987. Chiang Kai-shek's son, Chiang Qingguo, put the country on a path towards democracy. On the mainland, Deng Xiaoping wanted liberalisation for the economy, but for society, maybe not, and for politics, no chance. But the students wanted it all. As time went by and the masses piled into the square, mourning the death of the ousted general secretary and beacon of hope Hu Yaobang, the chanting and writing of the protesters strayed from acceptable language. They called for democratization, freedom of speech, and dialogue between the people and the party. They sought to maintain a peaceful protest after unarmed police were brought in and scuffles broke out. Under pressure from hardliners. Deng wrote an article denouncing what he said were the subversive aims of a tiny minority of students. In doing so, he was recalling the devastating decade of the previous generation's students, the Red Guards, an incendiary comparison to make. It was a position that the government couldn't backtrack from, but the condemnation didn't stop more students and workers flocking to Beijing to join in or starting protests elsewhere around the country. Public support for the students only grew. They ratcheted up their demands for a withdrawal of Deng's article, 
with many going on hunger strike. Feeling the pressure, the party agreed to meet student leaders and have the meeting broadcast live on TV. The clouds seemed to be parting, but the optimism was short-lived. The live broadcast was cancelled and the students withdrew from the meeting. State News in mid-May 1989 reported 3,000 hunger strikers, with 2,000 needing hospital treatment, an undeniable sign of the conviction of the protesters. The party was split about what to do. The new General Secretary Zhao Ziyang took a sympathetic line, while Premier Li Peng called for a crackdown. To make matters worse than they already were, Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev was on his way for a state visit, and the world's press were in town to watch. Li Peng is the villain in this tale, and the victor. A privileged and conservative communist, he saw the protest as downright existential. He flatly refused to consider any demands by the students, including dialogue, and was the devil on Deng's shoulder in convincing the elder statesmen to acquiesce to a violent resolution. In the power struggle, the more sympathetic Zhao Ziyang was ousted. The last time he was seen in public was in Tiananmen Square, addressing pleading to the students. Students we came too late, he famously said through a loudspeaker. He apologised and told them that their criticisms were just, but asked them to stop the hunger strike and look to the future. You are not like us, he said. We are already old. It doesn't matter to us anymore. In this tone of resignation, there was a hint of awareness. Zhao knew the fate that awaited them, just as he knew his own. He became a non-person, spent the next 15 years until his death under house arrest. Li Peng secured his position as premier and stayed there for a decade. The removal of Zhao Ziyang was a big deal. It showed that the party were ready to play hardball. With many students determined to stay and people still coming in from outside Beijing, the army was called in on June 3rd. At first, there was no lethal force. The army had little inclination to start attacking their countrymen. Many were of a similar age. But that evening, the army returned, this time with provincial recruits who were fed the lie that a violent revolution was afoot. The crackdown began in earnest. Over the next couple of days, the massacre played out in fits and starts, with soldiers indiscriminately killing students. On the morning of June 5th, the tank man plodded past with his shopping bags, even jumping onto the tank to ask, what are you doing here? It's not known what happened to him whether he's one of the estimated 800 to 4,000 people who died during those days, or one of the tens of thousands who were arrested, some of whom were executed. The sense of optimism about what social and political freedoms the Chinese people could one day enjoy was truly dashed. The high watermark of political tolerance was in the mid-80s, and in the 21st century, Xi Jinping's authoritarian instincts and the tools of digital technology have tightened the party's grip around its people, to a whole new level. And I for one don't see any coming back from that. The pioneers of digital technologies with their Californian libertarian instincts invented the most useful tools for any 21st century autocrat. For what it's worth, the Chinese government puts the figure killed during those days at 241 and flatly forbids any further mention of the subject. Internet search engines like Microsoft's Bing comply with Beijing's request to censor search results and Google has been considering making similar concessions to get back into China's market. The founding ideals of the internet are truly regulated to a distant memory with these nation-sized companies that rule the networks. More creatively, Chinese netizens have used the date of May 35th 
to refer to June 4th and replaced tanks with ducks on the famous photos from the incident. But the censors caught on to that too. The army of Chinese censors are sometimes mockingly called river crabs by netizens, river crab being a pun on the word harmony. Scrubbing the internet of sensitive information is ironically called harmonization. The need to stay one step ahead of them has led to much creativity online. Xi Jinping's likeness to Winnie the Pooh has been heavily memed, so the river crabs find themselves scouring the internet, taking down the pudgy yellow bear wherever they find him. Kim Jong-un was anointed Kim Fatty III by online Chinese, causing a moment of diplomatic tension between the two communist allies. Taking direct aim at the censors, Chinese internet users invented ten Baidu deities, Baidu being China's Google. These deities were animals which are puns on naughty words. Such examples include the grass mud horse, which sounds like Cao Ni Ma, or Fuck Your Mum. A Baidu deity which probably has a more immediate ring to the English ear is the French-Croatian squid, which in Chinese is called Fakuryo. It's not perhaps the most sophisticated of protest movements, but the world would be a poorer place without the hidden fiery crab, which in Chinese sounds like prostate glands. Alongside the river crab censors is the 50 cent army, so-called because they are, or were, paid 50 Chinese cents for each post they write. Their posts flood Chinese social media with party-approved views on things, faking grassroots support. Unlike the regular people of China, they use VPNs with approval so they can access YouTube and Twitter and continue spreading the good word to the rest of the world. In recent weeks, this is April 2022, the battle between concerned citizens and harmonization agents has found a new front, as the coronavirus lockdown in Shanghai has tested the residents' patience to the max. In the years since I've been on WeChat, China's omnipresent social media app, there's been many a time when everyone seems to be posting the same thing. But April 22nd was particularly acute. The build-up was palpable, even from here in London. The frustration expressed by Andrew on the podcast a couple of episodes ago seemed to be increasingly common, and people who were normally completely disinterested in anything political began remarking on the situation, understandably as it came so forcefully into their lives. The outspoken attitude was becoming contagious, and the internet scrubbers were working overtime to keep the place nice and clean. At one point, even the first line of the Chinese national anthem, Arise, you who refuse to be slaves, was on the too-hot list. One night in mid-April, netizens began laying into the government via the comments section under two approved top news stories on Weibo one of which was about how Shanghai authorities are tackling rumours about the Shanghai lockdown. The other one was about how bad America is for human rights, the all-familiar tactic of resurrecting the big bad imperialists in the USA. Chinese netizens shifted into gear, commenting on their own plight in the lockdown, their own human rights deficit, and using the title of the film Call Me By Your Name to point out how the Chinese government projects its own sins onto America. They also mocked the Weibo censors who didn't catch up for many hours. One common gripe in China is the so-called 996 working pattern, working 9am to 9pm six days a week, or effectively, working non-stop. Well, one commentator joked that 996 was clearly not true, as all Weibo censors seemed to have finished work already. But they did eventually put a stop to all the free speech. 
Then, on April 22nd, the same day as the Shanghai Daily put out an extremely buoyant video of one community in Shanghai which appeared to be free to enjoy leisurely pursuits outside the buildings, such as roller skating and running around, another video found its way onto the internet. It was called Sounds of April, and it kept getting scrubbed and then reposted and scrubbed in this endless ping-pong game between social media users and censors. In it, we are slowly flying over a black-and-white Shanghai cityscape. Apart from the emotive strings in the background, the only sounds are the various moments picked up on phones which have occurred throughout the city. People unable to get health care, babies being separated from families, the notorious problem of getting food and supplies. One famous piece of dialogue is between an exasperated older gentleman called Mr. Lee, who's trying to get some answers out of a volunteer on a phone hotline. But it ends up that the volunteer is just as sad and frustrated as Mr. Lee is. Oh. All these people are phoning him for help, he says, and all he can do is report to his superiors. Mr. Lee ends up comforting the call handler. Oh. Anyway, people kept uploading this video, taunting the censors who were taking it down. Then someone found a QR code leading to the video, which was apparently harder to delete. So WeChat was full of QR codes. Alongside that, jokes about 404 errors, links to other blogs detailing the grim life of the places where the infected are sent, a clip of a government official saying that people have the right to freedom of speech, and a video clip from the Les Miserables movie, the song, Do You Hear the People Sing? a not-too-subtle cry to the authorities for acknowledgement. The following day, Hu Xijing from the Global Times, a CCP mouthpiece, wrote that the Chinese internet has to be sinicized to work effectively in China, as it was a Western invention. Yes, he said, censors delete content, but they take the opinions on board and make improvements. Unlike the West, he pointed out, where dissatisfaction is casually expressed, but no one listens. Another case of call me by your name, you might say. The person who actually made the video, spooked by something or other, also came out to say that he hopes people stop sharing it. In 2008, a Chinese celebrity was getting his computer repaired, and the technician found numerous nude photos on it of the celebrity and other famous people. He duly uploaded them to the internet as he would, and a scandal erupted. In Guangzhou, a reporter asked the man on the street what he made of the scandal, and he responded that he doesn't know anything about it. He was just out getting some soy sauce. And just out getting some soy sauce became an expression describing those who really just don't give a shit about all this crap people talk about. Because whilst these outbursts occur in China from time to time, and Western newspapers greedily report on these moments of creative disobedience, it's harder to say how widespread the sentiments really are. Ai Weiwei, the famous Chinese artist and dissident, thinks that Western liberals overstate it. At the end of the day, the ones who care about political issues mostly support the party, he says and most other people are just indifferent. This is my experience too. There are a lot of memes and comments which, for example, satirise modern working culture, 
which is demanding and has little reward. But there is a stronger sense of apathy about it. The kind of nihilistic social mentality of the modern age is termed sung culture. And this existential condition of modern life is going to be explored in an interview uh, in an episode sometime in the future, I hope. Not giving a shit as a smart move in China. It wouldn't be unreasonable to ask if those who put their head above the parapet need someone to examine said head. They follow in the footsteps of many an ill-fated dissident. The Chinese have a word stemming from Confucian thought, Dongyong, which essentially means the golden mean, but effectively acts as a reminder for people not to get above their station. A new crime was introduced in 1997 which literally forbids picking quarrels and provoking trouble which can usually be used to get rid of whichever annoying activist who strays too far across the line. That's the one they levelled at Zhang Jian, the independent reporter who tried to get out the truth about Covid in Wuhan. I can hardly blame people who tell me that. I don't care about these things. They're nothing to do with me. It's a common position on most socio-political issues. Honing these survival skills is important throughout the ranks of Chinese society, from the pauper to the prince. As the billionaire businessman Wang Jianling put it, stay close to government, but distant from politics. It's not known whether another businessman called Ren Zhechang heard Wang's advice, but if he had, then he certainly didn't take it. He was a successful real estate tycoon, a Communist Party member, and on one of the party's central advisory bodies. But in the 2010s, he became an outspoken critic of the CCP and Xi Jinping provocatively asking his millions of social media followers, when does the people's government turn into the party's government? At the onset of COVID-19, he wrote an essay in response to a speech by the leader, saying that what he saw was a clown stripped naked who insisted on continuing being emperor. He disappeared shortly afterwards and was sentenced that summer to 18 years in prison after being found guilty of corruption. Xi Jinping's flagship policy was an anti-corruption drive. Although one doesn't have to be too cynical to see this as a euphemism for a good old-fashioned purge. Hundreds were taken down, mostly important figures within the party and the military, accused of tax evasion and bribery, leaking secrets or having adulterous relationships. The point isn't that these people are all innocent, it's that they got picked up for it. Against this backdrop of correcting the mistakes of the powerful, other more innocuous transgressors get swept up and put into line. Jack Ma, the charismatic Jeff Bezos of China, is also a member of the party. He started off as an English teacher, just like me, and became a billionaire, which is where our similarity ends. His success came from tapping into China's huge consumer market. He founded Alibaba, which in turn owns Taobao and Alipay a marketplace and payment system which has become central to daily life in China. His financial company, Ant Group, was due to float on the stock market in 2020, until, at the last minute, Xi Jinping stepped in and stopped it. The reason is speculated to be because of comments Jack Ma made criticising financial regulations in China, but also because his enterprise, in upending the way that Chinese do money, threatens the government's control of things. As Jack himself had previously quipped, I talked with all the chairmen of the big banks. One of the guys said, Jack, in ten years we'll have a fantastic memorial for you to thank Alibaba and Jack Ma for doing all these great things. But now we have to kill you. As the launch of Ant Group on the stock exchange was cancelled, Jack Ma disappeared. 
fines for Alibaba followed. Jack Ma is among the most famous rich people in China. It's like taking out Richard Branson or Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, and that's not an exaggeration. And just as it goes in the West, there's a fair amount of disdain for the super-rich figures like Jack Ma in China, often with a Marxist critique added in for good measure. What does it mean that people so famous and powerful in China can be disappeared without so much as a shrug? The Chinese government has a single catch-all solution for those with straight hearts and quick mouths. They're locked up, and everyone is surveyed. When the person in question is too famous for these simple measures, they have a different approach. They're locked up, a spokesman is assigned to deal with tricky questions, and everyone is surveyed. Most of the time, only human rights organizations and the occasional sympathetic newspaper give it a mention, and that was the case with the Hong Kong booksellers. Hong Kong was ceded to the British in the Treaty of Nanjing after the First Opium War ended in 1842. As a free trade, low-regulation, multicultural hub underpinned with British bureaucracy, it thrived, much to the consternation of the Qing government on the mainland, who had to deal with the social consequences of Britain's lucrative drug dealing. Hong Kong remained in British hands until 1997, when it was handed back to China with much flair and certain provisions written into international law. Known as the One Country, Two Systems policy, it promised that Hong Kong would keep its capitalism, its voting rights, and its freedom of the press for a period of 50 years. Only the capitalism would remain untouched. Throughout the 2010s, Hong Kong erupted in protest in opposition to the way that Beijing started selecting the candidates that Hong Kongers could vote for, and also started taking aim at free speech. Some protesters waved the British Union flag as they marched. Which may have caused a raised eyebrow or two. Life in the British colony was hardly a democratic wonderland after all. It was only a few short years before the handover that Britain widely extended voting rights to Hong Kong residents. It was a bit like a cunning divorcee drowning their kid with presents just before handing them back to the ex-wife. But whatever the complexities of the history, Hong Kong had developed its own identity during its time as Britain's pearl of the Orient. The place wasn't without its issues, though. The triads catered to the city's illicit vices, like drugs and prostitutes and counterfeit goods. Ground zero for Hong Kong's underbelly was the famous Kowloon Walled City, an unregulated community in which buildings were literally built on top of each other, where thousands of people lived like sardines, where water dripped constantly, brothels and illegal gambling was rampant, addicts died in the damp hallways, and the triads ran the show. It all made for great cinema. But many of the people in the walled city were refugees who'd fled the mainland. For many, life was relatively good, and across the colony, people had a pretty decent standard of life, all things considered. Having been largely protected from China's internal strife, many were not keen to rejoin it, especially a China which had become autocratic and communist. Under the one country, two systems arrangement, Hong Kong had lively elections and a vibrant free press. And in one little corner of that free press. 
a rather salacious corner, was Lam Wing Kee. Lam was the owner of a Hong Kong bookstore called Causeway Bay Books. They prided themselves on releasing books detailing the private lives of those in power on the mainland, and were due to release a book called Xi Jinping and His Mistresses. Perhaps that was the last straw. In 2015, five members of staff were abducted by Chinese authorities. Lam was abducted on a trip to the mainland, incarcerated and interrogated. Eventually, they let him loose, as long as he provided the hard drive which contained details of those who were buying the banned books. As with other staff members, Lam agreed to the demands handed down. Back in Hong Kong, he realised that Causeway Bay books had been bought and shut down. He collected his hard drive of criminality and made plans to return it to his handlers. But at some point before taking the plunge, he checked the internet and discovered the amount of concern that fellow Hong Kongers had for the missing bookseller. He had become a beacon of free speech, cruelly intimidated by mainlanders who didn't respect the island's fundamental values. After consulting his inner demons and better angels, Lam called a press conference and spoke out about what had happened. His colleagues, who also abducted, stuck with Beijing's line, but Lam was a rebel again. Causeway Book still exists, and Lam still runs the show, but not in Hong Kong. The new home of Communist Party gossip is in Taipei, Taiwan, the country rated number one across Asia for press freedom. For Hong Kong, things came to a head in 2019 when protesters turned out against an extradition bill that was being introduced. In response, the authorities became increasingly heavy-handed and videos of violence circulated online. Violence committed by the police fed the narrative that expressions of dissent were being curtailed. But violence committed by the protesters also surfaced and was beamed into Chinese living rooms across the mainland. The party should put these troublemakers back in their box, was what I was being told at the time. And at the time, I was teaching English online to a young Hong Kong professional. During the classes, I could hear the turmoil outside his window, makeshift barricades with well-organised supply lines, fireworks and the clanking of tear gas canisters hitting the ground, counter-protesters chasing down the agitators with wooden sticks. From his bedroom in the high-rise, my student was exasperated. Can we not study in peace and quiet? He lamented. He told me that the coming elections would show a huge turnout for pro-Beijing candidates. The silent majority of Hong Kongers were outraged by the unrest and economic damage of the protests, he said. But when the elections came later that year, the turnout was the highest in Hong Kong's history, and it was a big middle finger to Beijing. Only the kowtowing corporate world and Jackie Chan seemed to enjoy the mainland support, and that's because of those nice shiny red banknotes with Mao pouting on the front. Ignoring the expressed opinions of the people in Hong Kong, the government in Beijing responded by introducing laws to target citizens for secessionist or subversive behaviour, including banning anti-Beijing flags or slogans or the mocking of the Chinese national anthem. Prominent activists were locked up, such as Joshua Wong and the famous businessman and journalist Jimmy Lai. Others fled to safer countries, like Nathan Law. The British government made it easier for Hong Kong people to start a new life in the UK, and other governments around the world offered condemnation. Once again, the CCP shrugs a scripted response, and the crisis on the island city-state remains. With new technologies coming online, the authoritarian regime's birthdays are all coming at once. You'd have to be running on unrefined optimism not to see the future as a bleak one where human rights in China are concerned. Not only is the promise of freedom disappearing over the horizon, 
but more effective control over more people in Hong Kong and Taiwan and beyond is quickly striding into view. Despite this unconquerable mountain and the wreckage of disregarded lives littering the past, some people are just hardwired to fight for justice. The undisputed saint of those with straight hearts and quick mouths is Liu Xiaobo. He was a veteran dissenter, an academic who lived and taught overseas, but returned to Beijing to join the Tiananmen Square protests, soon finding himself in prison. Later, criticism of China's government got him sent to a labor camp, and his clever demand that the party should follow Article 35 of the Chinese Constitution and give citizens freedom of speech, of the press, of assembly, of association, of procession and of demonstration, won him few admirers in Beijing. It was during his time in the labor camp that he married the poet Liu Xia. In 2008, Liu Xiaobo co-wrote the explosive Charter 8 and had it signed by 10,000 people inside and outside of China. In it, he declared that the choice between authoritarianism and democracy was unavoidable, and he had a firm preference for the latter. In the preamble, it says, The outcome of the civil war between the nationalists and the communists plunged China into the abyss of modern-day totalitarianism. The new China established in 1949 is a people's republic in name, but in reality, it is a party domain. The ruling party monopolizes all the political, economic and social resources. It has created a string of human rights disasters, such as the anti-rightist campaign, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, June 4th, which is the Tiananmen Square massacre, and the suppression of unofficial religious activities in the rights defense movement, causing tens of millions of deaths and exacting a disastrous price from both the people and the country. And Liu was back in prison once again. While there, in 2010, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for his long and non-violent struggle for fundamental human rights in China, as the Nobel Prize website puts it. Sometimes the brutality of fate just hits you right in the gut, and this is one of those times. There's no guiding moral hand, no karmic points system, no long arc which bends towards justice. There's just the outcry, the prison guard, the bureaucrat, the party and the endless indifferent universe beyond. In 2017 it emerged that Liu Xiaobo had liver cancer, and a new fight began to grant him some decent health care and or dignity. By this time, Liu's wife Liu Xia was under house arrest, and other members of his family were under surveillance. In the summer of 2018, Liu was granted medical parole, and a month later he was dead. Liu Xia was still under house arrest, going deeper into depression. Eventually, contacts in Germany managed to get her released and sent there for medical help. But a brother remains in China, entangled with the country's selective justice system. A reminder that, as a gangster might put it, it would be a shame if something unfortunate should happen to him. Liu Xiaobo is the most high-profile human rights defender in China apart from perhaps Ai Weiwei, but it should be remembered that there are countless lawyers and activists who have been mercilessly put down by the powers that be, often with the use of gangs of plainclothes men who surveil, harass, intimidate, abduct, torture, and perhaps dispose of the troublemaking individual. It puts things in perspective for those who bang on about freedom of speech being under threat in the West. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, a newcomer in a school. But first, 
an extended chat with a good friend from Shanghai. How do these perhaps Western constructs of human rights and silly notions of freedom play in China? Maybe I'm getting the wrong end of the stick when I say, with this Western naivete, that locking up these innocent people is, in some sense, not that good. So my friend Spring will join us to put forward a much-needed Chinese perspective. Thank、you